Welcome to Church Online. I am so excited that you have joined us this morning. I'm Pastor Matt. I pray that our worship will be exciting and uplifting. I pray that the ministry of the Word will work in your heart and that the Lord will do something special. Thank you again for joining us and enjoy the service. Man, how is everybody this morning? Good? Good stuff. So the, the concept that I want to be, that I want to talk about today, um, you'll see it on the slide up there, it'll, it'll make more sense, but I want to talk about, for a while, identity. How many of you have, have struggled with your identity, who you are, and how many of you just know that the world that we live in struggles with its identity? Yes. So we're all on the same page. And, here, and here's the thing, identity is not, well, this is what we'll see in Scripture, identity is not something that we can manufacture. Uh, it's not something that we can, that we can uh, you know, create in any, any sort of way. Identity is something that is given to us by our Creator. And that's a principle that we'll see, and I think that it'll come across in a surprising way, but this truth has been a blessing to me, and I think it'll be a blessing to you as well. So just keep that thought in the back of your head. Um, the title is Ideal, and you see the ID thing, so, but we're, we're, we're on a journey here this morning and I want to show you guys how the ideal, as it's presented in Genesis 1 and 2, is, is something that we can root our identity in. It's something that will keep us from searching in all the wrong places to give our lives and, our, our, and meaning to our person. So if you want to read along with me there in the program, uh, we're going to Genesis chapter 1, verses 25 through 31. And verse 25 says, God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. Let's pay attention to that term because that pops up a lot. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So the image is plural. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, so as we read through Genesis, now you'll notice there's a lot of, there's a lot of repetition, and that's because Genesis is poetic. In its original language, it was you know, in the ancient world, we didn't have printers or computers, you know, stuff was preserved through oral presentation, and so it's poetic because it was easily memorized. But there's a lot of stuff that's repeated in here because it's important. And so we see that word image pop up a lot. Now, you guys can kind of track with me when I say this, but when we think of image, if I was like, hey, Steve, what's your image like? You'd be like, oh, man, I look fresh. You know what I mean? Because he does, doesn't he? And so... <laughs> But our, you know, to us in the 21st century, our image is, is what we portray. Our image is what we look like. When we look in the mirror, we see an image of ourselves. When we take a selfie, we see an image of ourselves. Some of those images don't need to be on the internet. Point number one. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That kind of. Um, so, but that's, that's what we think of when we see images. Now, 
at first glance, that makes sense, right? God made man in his image. Oh, okay, we look, we look like him, you know, right? Not necessarily. So what we'll see is that the image that is portrayed in Genesis 1 actually means something a lot different than what we would normally think. So if you'll walk with me here, and you can follow along in the program, and if you don't, um, if it doesn't quite soak in today, uh, on all of our podcasts and YouTube videos, the, there's a link to the notes from that specific message in there for that. So if you want to follow along later on, that's cool too. Um, but the first thing we want to look at here, so if an image is not what I see when I look in the mirror or what I look like, what is an image? So in the ancient world, and this is language that's applied to Adam as well, in the ancient world, the king of any given province was considered to be the image of their god. For example, Pharaoh in Egypt, we all know Pharaoh, was, was viewed as Horus incarnate. Horus is a, an Egyptian deity, um, and he was, you know, that's what gave Pharaoh his authority. He was made in the image of God. And so Horus was also the son of the Most High God. So Pharaoh was, was, was talked about as the image of God. He was talked about as God's son. So this is all image that is used elsewhere outside of Scripture, and right, and Scripture was produced in a context, and so that's, this is where we get our meaning from when we're talking about this. So when he's talking about image, he's talking about something that exists in the world outside of, uh, outside of the text at the time. And so here's the thing. Pharaoh's status as the image of his God or as the son of his God is what gave him authority, Right? The ancient world is different than today. They did not elect leaders. Leaders came from a specific royal lineage. And in Egypt, Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh's dad was Pharaoh, his dad was Pharaoh, and that's just how it worked, right? Every firstborn son in that family was Pharaoh. And they got their authority from what they believed to be their gods, right? Horus was indwelling Pharaoh, and Pharaoh thus had the authority to do whatever he wanted. And in Exodus, we see that the Pharaoh did in fact do everything that he wanted to do. And so the image, this concept, the first part of it, there's, there's really two facets to it that we'll see. But the first part of it is that the image is, is authority. The image is a status, right? Pharaoh was able to rule how he did and do what he did because he was the image of his God, okay? So that's, that's level one. Now, what does that mean for us? How does that, you're saying, how does that apply to me? How, what do I get from that? And so here's the contrast, right? Page one of the Bible, this is a, this is a confliction with ideologies, right? The, the Bible is taking on thoughts of the day, and it's, you know, basically pummeling them. Um, but the idea is that, so in the ancient world, rulers, image of God, son of God. So creation, we have God creating humanity. And what does God say? He says he created them, humanity, in his image. What that tells us is that Humanity was created with a divine authority. We saw in the text that Adam and Eve, they're given authority to rule and subdue over God's good world. Okay, that's a given. And then B, we have the fact that because they are all God's image, guess what? Everybody's a ruler. Guess what? Everybody's equal. There is no difference. And so in God's good world, he creates humanity in a way that says, guess what? Everybody's on the same playing field. Everybody's equal. There is, no, there is no delineation. There is no hierarchy. Everybody is an equal ruler, and that's, that's how God created his world. God's world was not created to have one person above another oppressing them. That's not how it was created. That may have been how other cultures in the ancient world operated, but that is not how God 
designed it. So we see similar language applied to uh, Adam and humanity across both the Old and New Testament. Uh, if you look in your notes there, Luke 3.38, uh, it's the end of a lineage there for, for Jesus, but Adam is called the son of God. God. Adam was God's first human son. Humanity, according to Psalm 8, has divine rulership. Um, Psalm 8 says, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds and the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. He says, listen, you've given dominion to humanity over everything. And if you read the whole Psalm, you'll see that he's reflecting on like, why why would God do such a thing? Why would God give authority, give this, this power over to humans when we, you know, to rule everything when we do a really bad job, right? How many of you know that we do a really bad job running things? Let's talk about, can we talk about the MBA for a second? Okay, right? Like, we do a pretty bad job on the grand scheme of things of, of at running this world. We run it into the ground. That's what we do. And so, but the creation narrative here. God is creating humanity, and he says, listen, everybody's royalty. Nobody's, nobody's above another. We're all equal, right? And we're all in partnership together with God. So he's highlighting these things and highlighting that not just political powers, but every single human has the same authority, the same value. That's, that's the big thing here is value. Because humans in, in different countries around the world today, and even in ours in some places, we're viewed as a currency. We're viewed as just a you know, you're just a cog in a wheel making society work, and that's not at all the value that, create, that God places on you in the creation narrative. You're valuable. You are, you are as valuable as you possibly can be as a human being in general. No strings attached. That's how it's presented. So that's the first part of it. We have authority attached to being made in God's image. And then the second part is interesting, and this is where my llama friend comes into play here. So to be made in God's image is actually to be an idol, put something in here. It's got something rolling around in there. I don't know what it is. Um, and, this is the, and this is the part where it starts to get a little bit different, right? When we talk about, uh, you know, what, what do I mean when I say humans are idols? What exactly does that mean? So here's, here's where, you know, below surface level in the text here gives us a couple clues. So um, when Adam was created, the Bible says in, in Hebrew that Adam was created Bethlehem, Bethlehem which means in the image. You know, in God's image, Adam was created. And what's interesting is that same Hebrew phrase is used in other passages to describe molten images or graven images that people would make, and these would be gods that they, you know, they would, they would represent gods that they worshipped. And so right off the bat, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam's made in the image, and it says it multiple times. You know, this isn't something that's, that's not super common. Like, it's like, you know, four or five times it's mentioned that Adam was made in the image, right? And if that is to correlate with idols, what exactly does that mean for humanity? So let's talk a little bit about idols to give ourselves some context. So, um, and just to give you an example, Leviticus uh, 26, it's the same, same word there. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a salem or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land. So, and this is all in the program as well. Um, so we, ha we have that, that language is used of idols. You know, that, that's what it is. So an image always refers to some sort of idol statue or figure. And in the program, you'll see I have a picture there of a, of a Dagon statue that, function, that would function as an idol to the, uh, to the Philistines. Um, 
Now, here's, here's the interesting thing about idols, and we'll, we'll see what Paul's take is on them in just a few minutes, but in the ancient world, people worshipped idols, yes, but not because they believed that the thing that they crafted with their hands was actually a deity. No. What they believed was that they would make this thing, and then that functioned as a, as a dwelling place for the deity that they were worshipping. So this was, a, this was a physical representation, a manifestation of the god they worshipped in this idol, our friend the Lama. I don't know what god he represents. I don't really want to know, but I got him at Walmart in case anybody wants to know. Um, but but that's, that's how that worked. And so the idea, and if you look at the picture in the program, you'll see it, but they would, they would make these things and their head would be tilted back a little bit and they would be in a position where they would have a ceremony and the spirit of the deity would fall and indwell this idol, or so they thought. And so that's, that's what it meant. So there was, nothing, there was nothing inherently magical about the idol itself, but what, what came into the idol that actually mattered. It was what the idol contained that they, they believed it contained that actually made it what it was. And we'll see why that's important when we talk about Adam's creation in Genesis chapter 2. So in the same way that ancients believed that their God would breathe into an idol and thereby indwell it, Genesis 2 describes Adam's creation the same way with Adam being filled with God's ruach, his breath, his spirit, the very breath that we have, our existence is owed to the one that we image. And let's, let's talk about this for a second. If we read Genesis, um, here it is. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So we have this picture where Adam is being, you know, Genesis 2 is like a different lens of looking at how the world was created. And we have Adam, you know, being crafted of the dust of the ground like clay making pottery. And then once the statue is done, God breathes into it and animates this thing that he made from the dust of the ground. And a lot of people take that literally, and that's fine. But what we see here, and you'll see the picture start to come together in Genesis 2, the way the writer is putting this together, you know, Adam's creation lines up perfectly with how, how ancient cultures would make and inaugurate an idol. And so God makes him and he breathes into him, right? Just, you know, breathe. I'm not going to breathe into it. I thought about it. I'm not going to do it. Um, but... But God breathes into him and thus gives him life. The very life that we have inside of us, the breath that we have inside of us as humans, belongs to the Lord because he put it there, right? The very, the very animating force that we possess that makes us humans comes from God. And guess what? Just like with this little uh, horse, donkey thing here, what's special is not the, the cardboard that's very cheaply made, it's what goes inside. Who knows what goes inside of a piñata? Candy. Candy, yes. What matters is on the inside of it. And so that's the same, it's the same principle when we're talking about an idol, right? Or when we're talking about the creation of, of the first human, Adam, right? What matters is what was put inside of him. What is inside of us is what we actually are. We are not our bodies. Our bodies are a house to something, something that is inanimate that we cannot see. And so, you, you guys tracking with me? You get in the picture. Adam, you know, Adam's creation is portrayed this way for a reason. And so we take all of this, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of different laws that have to do with idolatry in the Old Testament. And making a making a an idol to the God of Israel was an offense that was punishable by death. It was a really really big deal. Why is that? Well, here's the answer. In short. 
So God told them not to make images of him because they themselves were images of him. Does that make sense? We don't need idols if we are the idols. If we are the physical representation of our God to creation, we don't need idols. And to make something that is an idol is, is contrary to, to everything that God has ever said. It's contrary to the creation narrative. It's contrary to created order. And so, with the image, humanity is a collective, men and women, black and white, everybody was made to rule God's good world with divine authority. Being made in God's image is not something that can be tied to our physical appearance, thank goodness, or mental ability. It's a status that is given to us. It's a role that is given to humanity. Being made in God's image is what separates us from the rest of creation. And if we think about it, God makes all these different things, and we, you know, and we're different. We're just different than, than the animals. And sometimes it's, you know, when we talk about chimpanzees and different things that kind of look like us, kind of have the same organ structure, they can do different things with their brains. I don't know, I'm not a scientist. But there's a lot of similarities between our bodies and the animal kingdom. But what sets us apart? Why do we rule planet Earth? Well, it's because we're made in God's image. Nothing else. It's not our cognitive ability. It's the fact that we were made to function as God's proxies, God's representatives to the rest of the world. And idol imagery is used to convey humanity's role in terms that the ancient audience would have understood. How many of you know that God speaks in ways that we can understand? And so when the narrator's using words like image, like you know, all of these things to, to talk about an idol, he's saying this because he knows that it will track with the audience that originally received it. And so for us, some of the work is, is figuring out what exactly scripture would have meant to the audience that received it so we can then take that same meaning and apply it to our lives. So that's, that's part of the work with, um, you know, with scripture study. And lastly, on the image, to bear the image was to be a divine ruler, a son of God. The Genesis narrative tells us that every human's created equal, and humanity as a collective equally bears God's image, and we function as his representatives. That's our purpose. We're talking about identity. We're talking about who we are, what we were created to be. In the Genesis narrative, the ideal for humanity was that we are created to represent our creator. That's it. That is it. No, nothing more, nothing less. And here's the beauty of that. We can do that regardless of our occupation, regardless of our life stage, regardless of our past, present, or future. It's a status that is given to us. It's nothing that we have to earn or live up to. It's a status that was divinely given to humanity, something that is exclusive to us. And so, here's the thing. We're royalty, right? Humans are royalty. We've talked about that. But guess what? We're called to use our power differently. We, we talked about how Pharaoh abused his power, and that's, a, that's just one of, I'm sure, a bajillion examples in history of people who are in power abusing it. We're called to use it differently. Watch this. We don't, we don't use our authority to oppress people. We use our authority to bless people. That's our calling as God's people. We don't create chaos. We bring order because we're made in God's image. We are his representatives. When people see us, they see him. And if they don't, that's a problem. We need a gut check. If people look at us and they don't see anything that resembles the God that we serve, that's a real, real problem. And so to take that further, so you're like, man, that's pretty cool. I wonder, I wonder if that imagery stops there. Well, here's the next step, right? So we, have, so we have humanity as an idol, as our little goat donkey thing, rainbow, and we have, you know, 
We have that. So where does, where does that go? You know, well, so idols live in temples. That's the, in the ancient world, idols weren't just something that you kept on your lawn, like a lawn gnome. Uh, idols were something, you know, the divine presence dwells in it, according to, you know, whoever builds them. And so they go in a temple. They go in that God's house. And so as we read Genesis, do we see anything that resembles a temple? Here's what we do see. Uh, Genesis 2, 8 through 15. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now, that's a key detail. Pay attention to that. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it talks about um, some, different, some different rivers that flowed out of the garden, uh, the, the Pishon, the, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates, all are connected to this, this garden that was planted uh, in Eden. And so we have all of this together, and you're like, okay, so we don't have a temple, we have a garden. And if I were to ask the, the biblical writer, is that a garden being described or is that a temple being described, he would just say yes. Yes, it is. And here's why. Gardens meant more to ancient people than what they mean to us today. So there's an excerpt there that you'll see in the program. In the ancient Near East, garden imagery was used to describe the abodes of deities, representing luxury and abundance. The divine abode also represented the place where heaven and earth met. How many of you know Eden was that place where heaven and earth met? They intersected. And so the Old Testament often connects trees with divine encounters and sacred geography, and the Temple of Israel exemplifies this as it was decorated in the fashion of a lush garden. Now, gardens symbolize abundance. I go home and I have a fridge that, you know, was not working a few days ago, but now it is, praise the Lord. Um, but, you know, in the ancient world, guess what? They didn't have refrigerators. And so you either grew your own food or you bought it from somebody else who grew their own food. So to live in a garden was to live in a place of abundance where you essentially had no need, right? And Eden was presented as a, as a garden mountain, which on a practical level makes no sense at all, but when we dig into this, like, mountains were remote. Humans did not live there, gods did, according to ancient thought. And so this whole picture that we're putting together with the garden here is that Adam was created outside of the garden from the dust of the ground. The idol was made, the Adam was made, and he is brought in and he is placed, I should have picked it up, and he is placed inside of the garden. Now, that, at face value, that just seems like a sequence of events that has no meaning, but it does. And here's what it is. So, Adam was created of something completely other than, than what God is made of. If God is made of anything, I'm not really sure. But he is completely other. But God chooses to make him, and he plucks him up, and he takes and puts him in the divine abode. Okay? God's desire for his created human was to be where God was, was to be in fellowship with his creator. And here's, and here's another slap in the face to the deities of the ancient world. They thought that the gods created humans. For some, you know, for some reason, they were, they were slaves to the gods, and then the gods left because they didn't want anything to do with humans. But the scripture narrative shows that God, God crafted humanity. It wasn't some happenstance. We were fashioned together for a purpose by our creator, and we were taken and placed where he lives, the place where God set up shop, the place where he was going to execute his reign over his good world that he had just finished. That's the picture that we're getting when Adam is created and placed into this garden. 
And so as we talk about the garden, uh, some vocabulary is, is key here. So Hebrew, Eden, which is the word that's just Eden, uh, it means the light, which is cool. Um, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word paradise, which is something that we'll see pop up again in the New Testament. And so the Septuagint says, the Lord God planted a paradise in Eden towards the east, and there he placed the human that he formed. Now, when we think of paradise, I'm thinking like island vacation, nobody's around me to annoy me, you know. But when, when the biblical writers think about a paradise, the Greek word paradisos means simply garden. That's all it means. And so, and stay with me on that, that's going to be something that we loop back in at the end because this all ties together. And so we have all of this stuff going um, with the garden. We have this idle stuff, and you're like, wow, that's really weird. And that's because it is. It's foreign to us, right? We don't know, and that's fine. Um, so another thing, in, um, in, in ancient cosmology, the Tigris and the Euphrates River had deep significance concerning temples and divine presence. The writer's trying to tell us something with the geography of Eden. And that's not to say, listen, that's not to say that Eden was not a real place. That's not what I'm saying at all, because I believe that Eden was a real place. I believe that it actually existed. But what's important here is not whether it existed or not. It's what the geography about that place tells us about its purpose. Because this is where idols live. This is where humanity was supposed to thrive as a species, and so therefore we need to understand what about this place you know, makes it what it was. And so when reading the description of the tabernacle, you know, it's, if you guys have ever read, th- these, are the, <laughs> these are the parts of the Bible that we ignore, right? The descriptions of the tabernacle. We get about a third of the way through Exodus and we're like, wow, curtains and floors and oh, that's boring. Let's skip to the end, right? But if we read all of that, we see that these, these areas that were designated for divine presence in the temple and in the tabernacle, they were full of, of garden imagery, rivers, flowers, trees. Like these are all like buzzwords for, for the ancient people to know that this is where God lived. The temple was God's house. So what does all of this tell us about God's desired relationship with humanity? Well, humanity's ideal residence was with God, our creator. God does not de- uh, desire to be distant from us, but to be close with us, very close, like same house. God wants to partner with us to accomplish his will. Listen, he would not have brought us out from where we were to put us where he is if he did not want to partner with us. And if there's anything that we know from what we just read in Genesis chapter 1, his partnership with us overflows into every area of our life. Because the mandate given in Genesis 1 has nothing to do with an occupation, right? So, so we can accomplish, we can be God's images regardless of where we are and what stage of life we're in. Like, n- none of that matters. God, God wants to partner with us. God wants to partner with you in whatever stage of life you're in. The Bible says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. God wants to partner with you in that area of your life that you're struggling with, that you don't know what to do with. God wants to partner with you and help you through that. But here's, here's the thing that we'll see as the narrative unfolds forward is this is just something, it's a choice that we have to make. We have to want to identify with the, the ID, so to speak, that God has given us and not create one of ourselves, right? And so lastly with this, the, the human life, for, for this point, the human life is sacred to God. Even though mankind was created, 
outside of God's abode. Our very essence is fundamentally different and lower than his. He still brought us into his space. Listen, God created a dirt creature, and he brings him into the, you know, it's like letting a muddy dog into your house, you know? He knew that, you know, hey, it is what it is. He's going to do what he's going to do. But, but even, even in, the, even in the, the grimy, not God state that Adam was in, God still wanted to be with him. God still wanted to be in fellowship with him. God still loved him. And you may sit here today and you may think that you're unlovable. You may think that God is done with you for wherever you're at, whatever you've done, but that is just not the case. That is not what the creation narrative represents. God's ideal, messy humans living with God. That's the ideal, right? That's what we're seeing here. Now, unfortunately, on the, on the messy end of things, we know that mankind was created in God's image. We know that God was given a home in the divine abode. But guess what? God said, hey, this is great. I'm so glad you're here. Here's one thing you can't do. And guess what? We did it. Congratulations. Give yourselves a hand. We broke the one rule. Um, Genesis 3, we make the decision to decide for ourselves what is good and what is bad. And therefore, the image was fractured, right? All of Adam's children inherit what? Death. We inherit death. We die. Everybody dies because of what Adam did. Right? We don't inherit his guilt, we inherit the consequences of his actions. Therefore, the Lord God, this is uh, Genesis 3.23, it's in the notes, sent him out of the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Adam messes up and God says, guess what? You have to go back to where you came from, unfortunately. You have to go back to the ground that you came from. You were given a place in the divine presence, but you have to go back. This is really sad. It's really, really sad. Romans 5.12 just as though one man, or just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Listen, we're fractured. We're broken. How many of you can look around you and see that your world is fractured and broken? And maybe outside of your own world, you know that just the world in general that we live in is fractured. It's broken. It needs Jesus, right? We all see that. And here's an implication of being a fractured image. Being a fractured image means that we worship images. And you say, I don't have one of these things laying around in my house. I don't worship that. Hmm. No, you don't. But here's where we're going with this. Paul talks a lot about idols, and he is aware that idols are just hunks of wood, but also hunks of wood that represent something a lot darker. Remember we talked about idols are, yeah, it's just a, just a piece of something, whatever it's made out of, right? But it represents something darker. Paul says this, what do I mean then? The thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? That's what Paul said. And so, what we have to understand is Paul is talking to the Corinthians about idol, like, you know, sac meat sacrifices to idols, and they're, they're going down to these pagan temples, and the, the church, the Corinthian church, is going down, and they're, they're, ha they're clubbing it up. They're eating these meats that were sacrificed to idols, and they look just like the pagan worshipers that are there. And Paul says, no, that's a really bad thing to do. Why? Because you're fellowshipping with the thing that inhabits this. That's not good. And here's the thing, and you might say to yourself, well, we don't, we don't have idols in this country. We don't really have problems with people just going and hanging out at the local temple. 
every week and doing, you know, doing whatever they do there, and we don't. But here is our problem. The culture Paul faced had a problem worshiping other gods. Our culture has the opposite problem. We worship no god, right? America, as we know it in the 21st century, is becoming an increasingly atheistic society, meaning that we acknowledge no deity, none, let alone Jesus, right? That, that's, that's where we're headed. We don't worship gods. We don't worship idols. We worship ourselves. <laughs> the broken image of God worships the broken image of God. How does that make sense? It doesn't. But that's what we do every day. We have best-selling, you know, New York Times best-selling books talking about loving yourself. You're enough. You are awesome. And some of you are awesome. All of you are awesome. Um, but... <laughs> You know, we have all of these books and all of these ideas coming out that we can find meaning within ourselves. And if you've ever tried that, you know that that's just an empty hole. You know that you're just an idol that has a shallow, hollow inside that's full of nothing. And, but yet we fish there. We fish there for meaning. We, we try to find meaning within the self. But here's, you know, the, those problems may be different, worshiping other gods versus uh, worshiping no god, but for Paul, the solution is the same. He says this two verses later, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Right? Paul's solution was like, listen, you can say what you want, you can think what you want, but at the end of the day, we're called to love our neighbors. We're, called to, you know, we're not called to worship self. We're not called to worship other idols. We're called to care about our neighbor. We're called to care about the person next to us because we are not the center of the universe. I am not the center of the universe you are not the center of the universe. And Paul says, if we love our neighbor, this won't be a problem. If we do what Jesus said was the greatest of the Ten Commandments, loving our neighbor and loving our Lord, this would not be a problem, right? That's, you know, Jesus handpicked those two out, the greatest commandments. And so we're shattered, we're broken, right? What God created did not go as planned. If you look outside of here, you may see some good-looking grass, but it's not Eden out there. Only Pastor Matt's neighborhood is Eden. That's an inside joke, but um, it's true. He's got cherubim guarding the front gate. Um, <laughs> so we're broken, we're fractured, we're not living in Eden. So here's, here's the good news, though. This is where the message takes a delightful turn, now that, now that I've, I've battered you about how our world is not the ideal. So here's where Jesus comes into play, as if he hasn't been in play the whole time. But Jesus restores God's image that he imparted to us. Without Christ, we are cracked images exiled from the temple because that's, that's what happened in Genesis 3. Adam was the perfect image of God created, and guess what? He failed. His image, it was cracked. It was marred. It was never to be the same. And if I were to kick this thing apart, I'm not putting it back together. It's not going to go. I could try, but it's not going to be the same. And it's the same thing with some sort of idol statue, right? You break a stone statue, it's not going back together. It just isn't. And so... If we break the image, which we have, it cannot be repaired or patched. It has to be made new, right? All the way back in Genesis 3, we're, we're faced with the concept of humanity has to somehow be made whole again. We somehow have to be made new, and God has to do that, because guess what? Broken things don't fix broken things. They just don't. And that's, you know, that's just the truth of it. Thankfully, God chose to enter into our brokenness in the person of Jesus. Thanks be to God for that. And he, he tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are no longer broken if we are in Christ. Jesus, the second thing, you know, we were, we're bad rulers, right? We talked about how humanity just does a really bad job at that. Um, Jesus restores our right to rule. Uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's what Paul says. Look, there's a, there is a future reality coming, and it's coming like a truck. Okay, make no mistake, Jesus is returning. I can assure you of that. Out of all of the, you know, the shifting circumstances and the shift of culture, one thing that remains the same is that Jesus will return. He's coming back. And when he comes back and he brings the restored Eden with him, you and I, we're going to rule that with him because he's restored that right. Right? Human history proves that we can't, you know, <laughs> I just thought of an analogy, but I'm not going to use it. Um, you know, we, we, we don't know how, how, how to rule. We, we can't. We just can't handle power. But why? Because we're cracked images. We can't handle it. But Jesus restores that. Jesus is the perfect image. Paul says this, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus is the image. Jesus, and this is a prime, you, you guys ever heard the statement, um, you know, if you want a job done well, you do it yourself. That works if you're not me, because when I say that, I don't do it well. If you've, if you, I just, look, I just finished a kitchen remodel. My wife will tell you that when I say I'm going to do it myself, it'd be better off in somebody else's hands. It just would. And I'm keenly aware of that, unfortunately. But it is what it is. But Jesus is, is the prime example of God saying, if you want something done right, you do it yourself. If, 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 if I want humanity to succeed, if I want the image to be restored, God had to do that. God, Jesus incarnate, Jesus was, was the, the perfect image, the perfect idol, and within him was God's Holy Spirit. He could not fail because he was literally God incarnate. It was impossible for him to fail. He could not fail. And today, as we sit here, he still cannot fail. Jesus still cannot fail us because he is still the perfect image. And here's, the, here's one of the, the last things here. Man, this is awesome. I just love this. Um, so to, to take a step back to, to Old Testament again, in Old Testament thought, everybody went to Sheol, which in Hebrew is just a generic term for the grave or the underworld. That's where everybody went. And whether there was a good side or a bad side, it's kind of, it's kind of muddy. But that's an Old Testament thought. That was the fate that awaited you when you died. You know, you go to the underworld and you just kind of hope you go to the good compartment and that one day maybe God will rescue you out of that. Because scripture is, it's progressive revelation, right? We, we, you know, King David did not have the whole. He did not have the whole story. We do. But so at that point in time, you know, his, his hope as he writes the Psalms, he's like, you know, Lord, don't leave me in Sheol. You know, I know that you'll rescue me. Please don't leave me there. And so... What's interesting about that, so here, look, at, look at what Jesus says in Luke 23. It's in the program there. As he's hanging on the cross, he said one of the, uh, one of the criminals who were hanged there was, was, hurting, or was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
and we indeed are suffering justly. Or wait a minute. No, I'm sorry. I got it jumbled up here. Um, The other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And he was saying, um, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Speaking of Jesus. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your when you come in your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Where have we seen that term before? Where have we seen that term paradise before? Jesus is saying literally, because remember, paradise is just a word for garden. Jesus literally tells the person dying next to him, Today you'll be with me in the garden. That's where you're going to be today. And what Jesus is saying, he's, you know, and this is, again, this guy, if he was familiar at all with Scripture, he just, he, you know, he's, he's going to shield just like everybody else. And Jesus looks over at him and he says, today you're going to be with me in my house where I live. That's, that's what your future awaits. And we sit here today, Jesus says the same thing to you and to you and to you and everybody in the room. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Not that all of you are going to die. Just want to clarify you know, there's no Kool-Aid here. But, but, Jesus, but Jesus is saying to him, <laughs> I, had to do, I had to do it, I had to do it. Um, but Jesus is saying to him, you are going to be in the divine abode today. This was a shift. This is something that would have never, ever crossed somebody's mind before in Jewish culture, just going, going directly from this life to the next one and being in God's presence. That is something that is exclusive to what Jesus did. That is something that has never happened before. Jesus is restoring paradise. He has restored it. This is something that has already happened. Guess what? If I die today, I'm going to the garden. If I live until Jesus comes back, I'm going to the garden. It's the same. Either way, I'm going to be with him in his presence because he has restored that. Right? Humanity, we made our decision. We were exiled to the east of paradise. We were fractured images, but Jesus repaired and made new the image that we were in himself. And guess what? We're no longer cracked images. He's made us whole again. Steve, you are a beautiful rainbow llama. Hallelujah. It's, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. And this, these are just little, little nuggets here and there that we glance over and we just, you know, we assume that he's just talking about, oh, paradise, good place, cool. He's, he's drawing on something. And lastly here, we have that Jesus restores Eden. Look, the garden is, the garden in Scripture is like, it's like bookends, okay? We begin in one, humanity is planted in one, and we end in one where Jesus returns, new heavens, new earth, and we have a global Eden that is set up. A, a global Eden in a sense that the whole the whole earth is now as good as that little garden was. Because in Eden, we get the impression that, that the garden was, was just a little thing planted in the east of some territory in the Near East. It wasn't the whole earth. The whole earth wasn't the garden. But guess what? You know, Jesus' plan, or, or, or yeah, Jesus' plan in the beginning was for that to spread. Part of humanity's task being his image was to take the, the delight, the goodness of Eden, and deploy that to the whole world. That was part of our task as his imagers. And guess what? That got derailed when the image was fractured. That got derailed when we chose to take, take authority into our own hands and, and decide what is good and what is, what is not good for ourselves. But at the end of the day, Jesus restores it. And regardless of, regardless of what 
the evil forces in the world want. The, the plan is coming full motion. There was never a plan B, okay? God never, ever was like, man, I didn't see that coming. I, I, what am I going to do now? Global Eden's not going to happen. He said, nope, it's right on schedule. It's still going to happen. I'm still going to do what I set out to do, right? That's, it was, there's never a plan B. And so Jesus, we read in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. It, it, it happens. We know how the story ends, just as well as we know how the story begins. But where we are now, we're somewhere in the middle, I'm not really sure what section, but somewhere, somewhere in the middle of these two bookends is where we find ourselves. And so here's how this practically plays out to you and I today. Where is your identity rooted? Where, where are you finding value as a person? Where are you, what, what gets you up out of bed in the morning? For some of us, we would be lost if we didn't have our children because our identity's in our children. And there's nothing wrong with loving your children and being a good parent. Some of us, if we didn't have the job that we had, right? If we didn't have that career, I don't, I don't know what I would do with myself if I didn't have that. You know, all of these things that are, they all go away at some point, all of them. And guess what? Jesus never goes away. Guess what? The, the, the design and the, God's intent for humanity, it never goes away. And if we find our identity in that, being a good image, being a good whole image that Jesus has restored flows into our children. It flows into our career. It flows into all of those areas of our lives that, that we want to find our identity in. But if we take a step back and we say, no, God has already given me the identity and I don't need to pursue it anymore. We're, we're flipping the script. We're doing, we're doing the exact opposite of what our culture tells us. The culture that doesn't know who they are. They're trying to tell us who we are. You know who we are? We're the church. Amen. You know who we are? We're God's children. You know who we are? We're made in his image. That's our purpose. That's our calling. That's who we are. And that flows out into every aspect of our lives. Everything. And if it isn't, I promise you, you're missing out. And that's not to say that I never get it, I, or <laughs> never get it right. I don't. Um, it's not to say that I never get it wrong, because I do. But at the end of the day, when I go to bed, my desire is that everything that I do points to him everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, it's all mixed together, but I just, you know, if, if this life that I live as a, as a dirt creature that he created that's filled with his spirit, if all I do is bring glory to him, if all I do is make him known in my community, that's it. That's all I want. And as a Christian, if I put my identity there, it doesn't matter what the circumstances of my life hold because I, I'm not attached to any of it. And you can, and you can do that. You can decide today that you want to secure your identity and who Jesus is and not who, who you could be or who you think you are. He has already given it to us. It's not something that we need to earn. It's not. And so what Jesus restored doesn't just apply to the future, right? We don't have to wait until we die and, and, and be with him to, to enjoy the blessing that he has secured for us. It applies to us now. We can live an abundant life now, we are no longer cracked images, no. Jesus has, has not only made the image whole, you know, Paul said, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not images anymore. We're the whole temple. <laughs> you like that? It's like an upgrade. You know, we got upgraded from, uh, from coach to first class. You like that? 
Um, you know, we are, we are no longer cracked images. We are the temple of God because Jesus has chosen to live inside of us as believers. And guess what? We're the temple of God and we're going to a paradise on the horizon. That's where we're going. But can I tell you something? That Jesus is, um, what he restored, it applies now. He can restore you now. He's restored me and I can feel it. And if you're sitting here today and you say, I've never been restored before. I don't know what that feels like. If I'm this idol right here, there's no candy. If I were to crack open, I don't know what would fall out, but, but it's not, God's not in there. If that's you today, you can make the conscious decision to say, I want to be filled with something greater. I want to be filled with the presence of God. I don't want to be cracked and broken anymore. You can do that because that's all it is. It's a choice. And Jesus said, you know, that he would give that abundant life to all who come and ask for it. That's it. That's the, that's the whole of it. Jesus said, yeah, I did the work. I'm the perfect image, you know, and, you can, and I can impart that to you if you, you know, if you're loyal to me, if you believe in me. That's what Jesus said. And so as we come to a close here, as the, as the music begins to play, you're no longer a cracked image. You're whole again. <laughs> Aaron, I'm sorry, that was your cue. Um, uh, you're, uh, you're no longer cracked. You're, you're whole, okay? And you can be made whole if you're sitting here today and you just, you say, I feel broken. I don't know what that means. But you don't have to leave today broken. You don't have to leave today feeling the way that you came in. And if you're sitting here and you're like, I do have the Holy Spirit inside of me. I am a temple of God. Well, guess what? You have the same choice to make. Are you going to live in that? Or are you going to choose to try to manufacture your own identity? Are you going to choose to latch on to the things that are outside of you, that are outside of your control, that you can find some sort of self-worth in? We all have a choice today, all of us. Whether, whether we believe or we don't believe, we all have a choice. It all boils down to a conscious choice. Let's choose today. Let's choose to identify and find our identity in who Jesus tells us that we are. Who we are in Christ is greater than any identity that we can manufacture. Who God created us to be in the garden, in his presence, as the image, that's where we need to root ourselves. That's the, that's the ideal that we need to take and deploy into the world around us because that was God's plan. Thank you for watching and joining us for our church online. I pray this experience was just what you needed today. If you made a decision for the Lord to follow Christ, or if the Lord did something in your heart that was special today, we would love to hear about it. Post it in the comments, send us a message, and we'll reach out to you. Have a wonderful week and God bless.